how can it be? That's what we just sang. And I know sometimes that's kind of what we wonder. We wonder how can it be that, that Jesus would do this for us? How, how can it be that he would die for my sins? At least if we're believers, that's what we think. And uh, those of us who are non-believers or struggling with, with coming to any sort of faith, it's how can that really be possible? Or how can that you know, be the, the solution to all of life's problems? Christmas has a season. You know, there's parties and there's events. We have Black Friday and Cyber Monday. There's thousands of Christmas movies. Christmas is big inside and outside of the church. And the music, I mean, Christmas music. It's not just religious Christmas music. There's secular Christmas music. I thought this week the only secular Easter song I could think of was Here Comes Peter Cottontail. And I don't even know if that counts as an Easter song or not. But on Christmas, Jesus was born. We celebrated that four months ago, and that's important. That's a big deal. It's prophecy fulfilled. It's the virgin birth. It's God stepping into humanity. It's the arrival of hope. Christmas makes Easter possible, but it's Easter that brings meaning to Christmas. And so as a church, for the next 50 days, we're going to be in a season of Easter. I didn't want to just do one night of Easter. I want to do this for a season. So the next 50 days to the end of May, we're going to make Easter great again. <laughs> Somebody can make some mega hats. That's better than MAGA. Mega, mega. Make Easter great again. And so tonight, we're going to do some more songs later. But if we don't get all your favorite Easter songs, don't worry. We're going to keep doing it for the next 50 days. So we'll get them. And I'm going to dig into some of the lesser known Easter stories that we won't get to tonight. I'm even going to do some prequels to the story of tonight, and then we're going to move our Easter story towards the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit arrives. And so that's the next 50 days here at Refuge if you want to be a part of that. Emery and I, whose uh, kids are in the service tonight, I think five years old and up, so welcome kids. We're glad you're here with us tonight. My youngest, Emery, is here somewhere, I believe, and her and I just finished watching The Mandalorian together. I know we're late to the party on this, but uh, we finally started watching it. There's two seasons. I won't give any spoilers, but the thing that the Mandalorians, it's a people group, I guess, uh, uh, the thing that they always say is, anybody know? This is the way. Some of you nerds knew that in the room tonight. Of all the religious figures in the history of the world, they all said, you know, this is the way. Jesus is the only one who didn't say this is the way. He said, I am the way. Easter is the completion of Jesus becoming that way. That way to hope, the way to truth, the way to peace, the way to forgiveness, and most of all, the way to eternal life. So church, since Christmas, we've been going through the gospel of Luke. And in Luke's gospel, which is the longest of all the gospels, uh, it's got a very long and very detailed passion narrative. He really gets extensive with the last week of Jesus's life. And I hope you read it. There's just so many beautiful details. And so trying to figure out what to teach tonight for Easter was tough, but I thought it would be good if we just focused in on three important locations. There are three most important locations in the story, and that's the garden, the cross, and the tomb. You saw the Bible verses on the garden there earlier. We ended last week with the Last Supper. That's what we talked about, and Jesus using that simple meal to tell the story of not the lamb, but the lamb 
And he's trying to help his disciples understand what's about to happen in his life. And so in the story, the meal has now ended. Jesus has led three of his disciples to a secluded place to pray. Now, prayer after meal, especially the Passover meal, was fairly common for Jesus and his disciples. And really, it was fairly common for all Jewish people, again, especially during Passover. But this time of prayer would be unlike any other. And so Jesus takes with him his three closest friends. Remember, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. And that human side of Jesus desperately desires those who are close to him to be with him in this time. And I know we're doing Luke's gospel, but I'm going to start in the gospel of Mark, which is actually one of the sources that Luke used to write his gospel. And in Mark 14.32, he writes, They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, Sit here while I go and pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. We all have that friend that tends to exaggerate things, right? Like the catastrophizer, like everything's a big deal. I think for a lot of people, I am that friend. (laughs) Jesus is not that person. He's not prone to exaggeration. And so here, all of a sudden, he is experiencing soul-crushing grief. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Why now? Why at this very moment, as he prepares to go to the Father in prayer, is he sorrowful to the point of death? Let's go over to Luke's gospel, chapter 22. Luke writes, and he withdrew with them about a stone's throw away. So Jesus now goes a stone's throw away. So he's literally from here to maybe the back of the room from his disciples. It's not far away at all. He kneels down and he prays saying, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The stress is so severe for Jesus in this moment that he is drenched in sweat. There may even be blood in his sweat. It's possible, it's a rare, but it can physically happen that people suffering from extreme stress can actually have blood leak into their sweat. And so again, why? Why at this moment, finally, is Jesus so overwhelmed? And I know you're thinking, well, it's because he knows he's about to die. He knows the cross awaits him. There have been plenty of martyrs in the history of the Christian church who have handled death with more poise and inner peace than what Jesus shows right here. I mean, Polycarp, he's one of uh, John's first disciples, if you've ever heard that name. He's one of our first Christian martyrs in the history of of the history books, and uh, he was put to death by being burned alive. And as he's put there to be burned alive, he's steadfast. He never wavers. He's praying the whole time. He's laughing at his accusers. And then as he's burning, he's waving at his friends saying goodbye. He's just steadfast throughout his martyrdom. There's another lady, you go 200 years later, her name is Perpetua. 
and she's led into an arena for being a Christian, and they bring in the animals to attack her, and, you know, she's just mauled and, and left for dead, but she's still alive. So they send another gladiator into this arena with all these lions and scary animals, and his hands are shaking so bad that he can't end her life, which is what he was sent to do. So she grabs his sword, and she slits her own throat, ending her life. And so is Jesus just a wimp? He's not as strong as the future Christians. Let's go even further ahead. Tyndale, William Tyndale, the Tyndale Publishing, the first translator of the English Bible. He was charged with heresy for giving the common man the Bible so they could read it for themselves and stop being tricked by others. And so he's arrested for heresy. He's put on trial. He stays in jail for a few years. And then finally, I think he's burned as well. And his final words, he just speaks them with zeal at the stake. He says, Lord, open the eyes of the England's king. Steadfastness. If we read all the Gospels, though, Jesus prays this prayer to his father three times. Why does Jesus' followers face death better than Jesus? Because nobody in the history of the world, nobody has ever faced the death that Jesus is facing. For the last several years, Jesus has told his followers and those around him that he is going to die, that he's going to suffer. Hours ago at the Last Supper, he just told his disciples death was coming. And he didn't break down. He didn't come undone. He just told them. But something has now come upon him that causes him to plead with his father, take this away. And it's not the physical pain he's about to endure, which is going to be brutal. And it's not even death that his life is going to end. It's the cup. In the Old Testament, the cup is God's punishment and justice. Isaiah 51 talks of this cup. He calls it the cup of fury, of God's fury, or the cup of God's anger. Ezekiel 23, they call it the cup of ruin or the cup of desolation. Zechariah 12 calls it a cup of tearing and staggering. The cup is the divine, infinite wrath of God. And that fury, that ruin, that desolation is about to come down upon Jesus. And so what does that look like? God's fury, God's wrath. Well, it may not be what you think. God's punishment is actually giving people what they want, removal from his presence in their lives. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce says it like this, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And so how is separation from God punishment? How is separation from God ruin and desolation? We were created in the beginning to live in God's presence. And we need, as his creation, to be in his presence or we die and come apart. We have a garden at our house, and we're not great gardeners, but we grow some celery and carrots and some tomatoes right now. Dominic, one of our members here, gave us like eight different tomato plants, and so we got all kinds of tomatoes growing in the garden. What we've learned over the years is the plants that are more shaded... They don't grow as well as the ones that get the proper amount of sunlight. But if we removed all sun completely from these plants, the plants would shrivel up, they would disintegrate, and they would die. No amount of fertilizer, no amount of water 
is going to save those plants. And so some people will say, well, I'd just be happier if, if God wasn't, you know, over top of me and minding in my business and if I could live how I want and God just not breathing down my neck and, you know, he's always telling us things like love our neighbors. That's, that's hard. Be kind to your enemies. Only have sex with one person. Turn the other cheek when someone offends you. And Satan is always working to convince us that life would be a lot better without God. You'd be a lot happier away from God. And so in the end, divine poetic justice, God gives those who want this what they want. He removes himself from our lives, and we disintegrate. And so the cup, what Jesus is beginning to experience here is that, but on a scale that is infinitely greater than you and I could possibly imagine. From eternity past, God has had a face-to-face relationship with God. Jesus has a face-to-face relationship with the Father and God the Spirit. And so he's experienced the glory of a relationship with God. He knows what life in the full presence of God is like. And so now this trembling and this sweating of blood... It isn't an expression of some fear of some difficult physical suffering to come. It's the horror of one who has had a perfect, loving relationship with the Father, and now hell has been opened before him, that separation. It's been given a taste of the cup. It's been given a preview of God's wrath. He's showing, uh, God is showing him the extent of the payment that is due. And I'll be honest, I try to think about what that must have looked like to Jesus, but I have no idea. But if to just taste the cup that God sends into the flesh, into the shock, all I know is it must be awful beyond comprehension. So again, why this timing? I mean, Jesus has had a life of 33 years. Why is it right now that God reveals the cup that he's going to have to suffer to Jesus? I mean, Jesus has gone here to the Father for one last time of prayer, one last epic prayer, one last special moment with the Father. Maybe like the baptism and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all there, and it could have been this beautiful minute. John 10 says, Jesus said, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. Have you ever made the decision to do something, and then once that day arrives, You want to back out, but you're kind of stuck. I mean, having a kid sounded like a great idea at the time. (laughs) And then once they're here, kind of no turning back. I got a dog. I got three dogs now. Karen at Christmas time said, hey, we need to bring a puppy home again. I was telling somebody earlier, I used to get like the L.L. Bean catalogs or whatever, and they had a yellow lab, black lab, and a chocolate lab. I thought that would be a a great idea. It's not. (laughs) But the kids were on spring break this week, and so we had a couple of boat days, and we felt bad leaving the dogs at home, so we took all three dogs with us to the beach, and they, they had an absolute blast. Ivy is the puppy. She's the little golden doodle, and she just loved it. She hadn't been to the beach, I think, two or three times before, so she's getting comfortable with it, and she just loved it, man. She's rolling in the sand, making sand angels, you know, with her wings and stuff. In the process, she drank a lot of salt water. Yeah, all of you people who have been in Florida for any length of time know what that means. It's not good for a dog, especially a puppy, to drink a lot of salt water. And so she began to purge on our ride home. Out the front, out the back. Yeah, it was fun. (laughs) 
But we got her hydrated back up, and she started doing better, looking better. We decided that night, she usually sleeps with Presley. We decided it probably not the best idea for her to sleep with Presley that night. So we created her for the evening. I woke up Thursday morning, April 1st, April Fool's Day. Ivy was barking. She'd been barking for quite a while, and I'm like, oh, okay. So I go to the room that we help her in, and before I could even get there, the smell. Oh, yeah. I opened the door, covered head to toe, the crate, the walls, the whole nine yards. It was, it was disgusting, and I had to take her outside and wash her. It was nasty. Uh, by washing her, I meant I threw her in the pool three times first <laughs> and then gave her three baths after that. But I am a pet is for life, not just for Christmas kind of person. One of my biggest pet peeves in life is people who get animals and then get rid of them. And I promise you, though, had I known what I was going to have to experience this week with that puppy, I would have tried really, really, really hard to convince Karen that it was a bad idea. But now I'm stuck with this dog. Jesus once on the cross, there would be no turning back. To put it bluntly, he would be stuck. But here in the garden, the soldiers haven't arrived yet. There's not been a trial yet. There's been no nails put in his hands and feet. There's still time for Jesus to change his mind. There's still time to get out of this. And so God shows him the cup. He shows Jesus just how much he's going to suffer. He shows Jesus the full weight of his wrath. As Jesus is experiencing this anguish, this inner turmoil, he decides, let me go back to my friends for some solace and comfort. And we all know the story. In his darkest hour, his friends have fallen asleep. These are the people for whom Jesus is going to drink the cup, the ones that can't even stay awake. So God's showing Jesus two things. He's showing him how much he's going to suffer, and he's showing him the depravity of the people he's going to suffer for. And he could leave. There's still time to get out. But as he prays, and I want you to, to know, this is a raw, emotional prayer of pleading. He begs and pleads with God over and over. And so if you've ever begged and pleaded with God for something, you're in good hands. Jesus did the same. He was raw. He was emotional. He begged. But he ends, nevertheless... Not my will, but yours be done. And as I thought about that this week, in some ways, this display of love is almost greater than what we see on the cross. I mean, let me be clear. On the cross, that's where Jesus pays the price for our sin. But in the garden, he's shown how he would pay. He's shown who he is paying for. And he still makes the choice voluntarily to go to the cross. Nobody has ever obeyed God like that. If we go all the way back to the garden, Adam is shown a tree saying, obey me. God says, obey me and you will live. Of course, Adam and Eve didn't and they got the wage of sin, which was death. Second, Adam comes into a garden, Jesus, and he's shown a tree, which is a cross. And God says, obey me and you'll be crushed and abandoned. And Jesus says, not my will, but yours. No one has ever obeyed God like Jesus, but no one has also ever loved a neighbor like Jesus. He sees humanity at our worst. And God says, if those people are to be saved, there's no other way but the cup. 
And Jesus chooses to love us anyway. He hasn't been captured by the soldiers, but he will. And he'll be beaten, and he'll be put through an unjust trial, and then Jesus will die on a cross. But here in the garden, he accepts that cup. He accepts the cost. There's a quote. Don't know who it's, it's accredited to, but it says, Words are the least reliable purveyor of love. God doesn't just use words to tell us he loves us. Jesus doesn't just use words to tell us he loves us here in the garden. He's shown the cost. He's shown our flaws. And he chooses to go down this difficult road to show us his love. Watch this.
lot has been said about the cross and about the circumstances of Jesus' death, the shame of being naked and exposed, that flogging that you heard there, the spikes being driven into his wrists and his feet. And then they say, you know, on the cross, there's the convulsions and every movement that Jesus makes, there's tearing and his desperate grasp for air as he suffocates on his own blood. And that eventual exhaustion is, is what brings an end to his life. In fact, crucifixions, you've probably been told, were so bad that a Roman citizen could not be crucified. They could only be beheaded. That's how repulsive this method of death was. But the physical suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross, and it was severe, pales in comparison to the spiritual suffering he is undergoing. At the Last Supper, Jesus talked about the blood of the Lamb, and that's what was prescribed for humanity. That's what we needed. But here on the cross, that blood that was prescribed is now applied. Person by person, sin by sin, death by death. It's estimated that 108 billion people have walked the face of the earth. That's a lot of people. Jesus pays the wage of sin for every single person, every one of them. Those who will accept his grace and those who won't. Making salvation then possible for all. John chapter 3 verse 36, and this is when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says to him, And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't believe will never experience eternal life, but remain under God's angry judgment. Now, if you know the story, Jesus is crucified there beside two thieves. That's why we always get the picture of the three crosses there. So two of the 108 billion people who have put him on the cross are now there with him. And that's what the Gospel of Luke talks about most in this cross story. Luke says two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to the place called the skull, Golgotha, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. He's just making fun of him. Verse 40 says, But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he says these words, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. When I was three or four years old and going to dinner with my parents later tonight, I'll ask them the answer to this question. But my earliest childhood memory that I have growing up is we lived in a small trailer out in the countryside of uh, the hills of Indiana. And my earliest memory is coming home one evening from somewhere and our front door just being busted open. I mean, ripped off the hinges, the lock knocked off. And as we walked into our, our tiny home there, the home had been flipped upside down. Thieves had come into our home. But apparently, there were two kinds of thieves that had robbed us that night, maybe more, that had rummaged through the home looking for our treasures. And one of the thieves came in, and they turned everything upside down with no clue what they were looking for. And this is the part that I remember, because I went into my room, and all my Legos and stuff were just all over the floor. What kind of thief is looking through Legos to find a treasure? Not a very smart thief. The same time that would rob a trailer in Podunk, Indiana, perhaps. They just made a huge mess, this thief did. But there were other thieves, I think, in this group, and they were a little better. 
and they knew where to search for the valuables. And my parents were young. I was the first kid. We didn't have much. Uh, I think the most precious thing they had were their class rings. And so some thief knew where to go to find those class rings, and he stole that treasure. There are two kind of thieves on the cross next to Jesus, one with no clue what he's looking for. And he's looking in all the wrong places and saying all the wrong things. But the other thief, he scoped out the situation a bit. He's, he's paid attention to what's happening. And here's Jesus. His hands are pierced. He can no longer hold up his arms. Even his clothing has been gambled away. So it doesn't seem like he has much to steal from. But this thief asked for the only treasure that Jesus had left, his memory. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Have you ever been remembered by someone, someone who cared enough to, to text you good luck right before some kind of big event or a test or something like that? Or maybe you missed two weeks at church and somebody followed up with you. They remembered you. Or maybe someone you love has passed away and there's those people who remember that date, that anniversary, and they reach out to you and they remember you on that day. If somebody has remembered you in a special way, you know that being remembered is a profound way of expressing love. This thief has just asked God's son in his darkest moment with the sun blotted out in the midday, remember me. Jesus, I'm a thief, a nobody. You owe me nothing. But will you remember me? Will you love me? And in that single line... He's throwing himself at Jesus' mercy. He's showing a belief in Jesus as the Messiah. He says that even though you're on the cross, I still know that somehow you're the Messiah and you're going to usher in God's kingdom. And so Jesus replies to this man, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's a beautiful picture of absolute grace. The thief has done nothing except confess with his mouth that Jesus is God and God will somehow raise him from the dead on the cross. And so Jesus says, you will be saved. It's a beautiful story. Verse 44 says, by this time it was noon and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone. In the Old Testament, when it was daytime and um, darkness covered the land during the daytime, it represented God's judgment. And so this time, usually the judgment was against some people that it did something wrong. But this time, the father is pouring out his judgment onto his son. And so at the crucifixion, typically we will think about the cost to Jesus, that member of the Trinity. But what about the cost to the rest of the members, God the Father? What did it cost him to stand by while his son was whipped and beaten and nailed to the cross? Next it says, and suddenly the curtain of the temple was torn down the middle. God the Spirit. What did it cost God the Spirit when the temple was torn? He was, he was there with Jesus at the conception. He was there with Jesus throughout his entire ministry. And here's the Spirit on the cross holding up Jesus while he takes God's eternal wrath. And as that temple veil is torn, that same power confined to the temple is now released through the power of Jesus. Verse 46, Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. That's the cross. And if the story ended there, 
Well, there would be no story, of course. And so we go to the tomb. Luke 24, verse 1, Luke writes, But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Karen will attest to this. I struggled with, you know, trying to figure out where to go with the sermon, and it was really this point. You know, I had the garden. I had the cross. I wrote like 10 different sermons about the tomb. (laughs) What to say about the tomb. You know the only thing that matters about this tomb? It's empty. He is not here. He is risen from the dead. In the garden, Jesus made the choice to take the cup, the blood that was prescribed for our sickness of sin. On the cross, Jesus drank from that cup, and he died, and he applied the blood to our disease. But as the sun rose on that third day, God's almighty power raised Christ from the dead and all the demons of hell could not hold him in that tomb. Evidence that the prescription and the application worked. And so the only thing that matters about this tomb, it's empty. And so instead of me writing some words to say to you tonight, the Apostle Paul's a much better preacher than I am. So let me say Paul's words on this topic From Romans 8, he says, Because the tomb is empty, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You received God's spirits when he adopted you as children. Now you call him Abba Father, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God raised Jesus from the dead, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress? Persecution or famine, nakedness or danger, or the sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every other religion, this is the way. Follow the rules, do all the stuff, climb the ladder, check all the boxes. Jesus says, I am the way. I check the boxes, I follow the rules, I climb the ladder to a cross. I've paid the price, I've gotten out of my grave, so be transformed by my blood. You are free, free, forever free. So I'm going to ask the band to come up. I'm going to ask you guys to stand up. I want to close tonight our Easter time together 
just taking some time to give God thanks for the garden, thank you for the cross, thank you for the blood, and then to celebrate that empty tomb. Let's pray. Father God, God, we thank you for the blood. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that we've been made free, that there is no more condemnation, there is no more shame, there is no more guilt, that every time we fall down, we don't have to worry. You're there to pick us up. That no matter what happens, we have the assurance that if our hope is in you, we will see those who also had their hope in you. We will be with them in life eternal. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and for the blood applied in Jesus' name. Amen.